Nobody asked for another podcast, so here you go, this is yet another intro podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome to our seventh episode of yet another intro podcast. I'm your host, Vitaly Gorin, co-founder and CEO of Ferris AI. We're lucky to be joined by Ryan Carniato, creator of SolidJS, Yoko Lee, partner at A16Z, and Alex Klemmer from Moment.dev. Some of the topics we'll be covering include why the world needs another front-end framework, infrastructure for front-end developers, and a special spicy topic, whether large language models will destroy humanity as we know it. Hope you enjoy. Ryan, thank you for joining us. You are the creator of SolidJS, which is a new front-end framework that competes with React. Listeners who are not in the details of the front-end world might think that there are too many front-end frameworks already and that React is the final destination that you're in. Could you please explain why you think that this is not the case and why the world needs another front-end framework? Sure. There's lots of ways to approach the problem of building UI. UIs themselves are very complicated and lots of different mental models could be present to author for the best experiences. And the truth of the matter is, over the years have been plenty of different approaches and they just come weighing in and out depending on almost like fashion, in my opinion. A lot of the ideas present in Solid existed around 2010. React kind of came up with its very uh, programming approach wave in mid-2010s. So 2013, React came out. A lot of stuff we do with Solid predates that, actually. And it's just coming back around again. Alex, people might not know this, but you also have an experience with Rocket Frameworks. So maybe you can talk a little bit on those. I guess you would know, have noticed this because it was an internal project at the time, Ryan, but I was, I worked on Rx when it was still reactive extensions and before there was like RxJS and RxJava and stuff like that. And I feel like reactivity as a programming model is having a renaissance. Like it used to be for a really long time that we had to convince people that this was interesting or useful. And I think of SolidJS as being one of the things that is really pushing forward what it means to have a reactive programming model and how it applies to UI. And it comes after this like very long string of APIs, which have been like varyingly successful, right? Like I think there's like the pure FRP models and like stuff like Elm and stuff like that. And Angular hitched its wagons to RxJS and stuff like that. And I don't have a question or anything. I was just going to say that I think Solid is definitely one of the most interesting programming models. I think of as advancing the state of the art and like reactive programming models. And I guess one of the questions that I have for you is, what was the thing you found most frustrating that caused you to work on this reactive programming model in this way? Yeah, people don't realize this at first because it takes time to build these things. It takes time to even, once you built it, propagate it out. I've been working on Solid for seven years. So what prompted me in the first place was actually React getting popular. I saw the libraries that I liked kind of fade into obscurity. I'm like, you guys don't quite got this right. There are other ways to approach these problems. We don't just have to throw out what we were doing before. And there's, there was a lot of hints out there in the ecosystem, things like MobX, which showed us that reactivity in the synchronous manner could also be predictable. So I just built on the things I had always loved. And actually, funny enough, React was a big influence on Solid, not because I ever saw myself fixing React, but over time I came to respect a lot of the decisions they made from a developer experience standpoint, the things that made it clearer what the mental model is, unidirectional flow, all that kind of stuff. And I pulled that back into the reactive model. It was never about making React better. It was about learning from React to make reactivity better. Yoko, you also talked about the renaissance of reactive programming model recently. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I actually have a question for Ryan. I'm super opinionated here, but would love to see where y'all think. So Alex and Ryan, feel free to jump in. Where do you think the rena- the origin of the renaissance of the reactor programming came to be? Because I saw it everywhere now, not just in JavaScript, but in other worlds too. So I think Tudiets of Programming Well has a bunch of different, very divergent community roots in, in very different places. So like from the programming languages side of things, you have people who are interested in like functional relational algebras over streams, right? And they're, they tend to think of this as like, a generalization of like relational algebras, generally speaking. And I think of RxJS is probably the first mainstream implementation of those kinds of algebras. And I think you can follow that thread and it, it cuts through like front end communities in projects like Elm and stuff like that. The appeal of something like that is obvious if you've ever tried to build UI that like updates, like this idea that you have a declarative spec and that the declarative spec runs hermetically, if like you have a function that calls and it executes beginning to end. And then you have a predictable result is something that has appealed to a lot of people for a very long time. I think for most of the history of the project RX, the struggle has really been practicality. Like people have had a very, very hard time writing and understanding relational queries over streams. And so when I think of SolidJS, I think of uh, observable, like the notebooking technology. So you have all these different reactor models. I, I think of them collectively as taking the ideas that we have established and fleshed out, and I would say arguably failed it as a former member of the RX team, and try to make them more practical in ways that people understand. Observable, the notebook, and in some ways, React and Solid are all taking constructs that people understand better, which is like the component model, or in like Observable's case, like the cell model, and having, in the case of Observable and React, like a full re-execution of the entire component model, like a signal that sort of snakes its way in and like changes an aspect of the component. And I think both of those are way more practical than the previous iterations of the models. And I'm like just super excited to see what Ryan and everybody are working on in space. Thanks. The thing is, it's funny, none of these things happen in isolation. Like I, I sometimes point out that the rise of single page apps happen to coincide with the rise of microservices. Like essentially we were like, okay, we are going to break everything up at the stateless backends. And then, okay, where all the state go? Goes on the, in the browser. There's a correlation between that where the industry kind of ready for that kind of shift. And I feel what's happened here now with reactivity, obviously, is a lot of talk about real-time systems, things getting closer to the user on the edge. And that coincides with as the area that I'm more familiar with, which on the front end side, which is we started looking at the fact that the Everstate growing bundle of JavaScript coming at us, there's just so much processing, so much that we have to send to the browser. And at a certain point, you're like, how can I break this up further? How can we do less the work? Because if we do less the work, then we don't even have to send that code to the browser in the first place. So in some ways, my work with Solid started with just the fact that I liked the developer experience and was really honing on that. And there was performance benefits. But what we're seeing now is this reactivity actually being the core pieces to even other new technologies and frameworks, just in ways of sending less JavaScript to the browser, simply because you're like, if you know what changes, then you only need that JavaScript, essentially. So this kind of combination of both of those elements coming up at the same time leaves us in a place where this is really quite compelling. One thing I was always curious about was that the fact when you're using your framework, at the end of the day, you're building a stateful app, not a stateless app. You have to have some sort of transactional workload somewhere in the database. And then that's like a key piece of the ecosystem. So from a solid GS point of view, how do you think about that? What kind of integration to implement? Who to partner with? What's the ecosystem going to be like? 
Yeah, this is a tricky one because I still think there is a question here about, especially on the backend side, about stateful and stateless backends. And serverless does, in a sense, not necessarily help with that side in the sense that like you set up these like short-lived containers that just get thrown away. How do you do persistent stuff? We have to come up with new solutions around that stuff like Cloudflare's durable objects and whatnot. And it's interesting because most of the front end is still operating under the premise that your back end is going to be generally stateless. There is a bit of tension or conflict there still trying to figure out. Because I know that a lot of people are really excited on the back end side of, oh, look, we can do reactivity in the database and we can push that forward. Whereas the front end isn't sure that's a bet we could make. I'm interested on both sides because I think that with reactivity, we have that choice. We can both look at our application, as I said, in smaller execution units and use that in stateless backends. But we can also look at being able to wire stuff straight through. I recently had some good conversations with the guys at Convex. I presented and they presented at the same meetup. And this actually was quite interesting because we both realized after each other's talk, wait a second, like literally you could change a field in the database and change one text node in the DOM and just wire that straight through. Like it, that's kind of like a reactivity wet dream, so to speak, in the sense that you have this incredible power of, of being able to connect something that is innately maybe business logic deep in the back where you don't want to expose that. And yet that layer, that communication is just directed so performance. So I don't know, in the sense, how the tools make that so straightforward. It seems really powerful. So I think one of the interesting things about the front end side of this is that now that we have a bunch of actually viable options in the front end that are all actually different models of reactivity, I think one of the things that sticks out to me is that a lot of the difference comes down to how you expect data binding to flow through the application. And it's interesting to see that so many different models can all be reasonably effective with like different trade-offs and stuff. When I worked on RxJS, we were actually working on a, a compiled variant of RxJS that was compiled that was distributed and ran as like a distributed stream processing thing. It was like a proto Lambda and it powered Windows 10 notifications, for example. And I think one of the things that we found is that reactive semantics on the back end, at the time, they seemed quite a bit harder to reason about than semantics in the front end, because now that we have tools to reason about, how updates are going to happen and how data binding is going to flow through your application. But what we found in the back end is that th there is no corresponding like component model for like backend views, like materialized backend views over streams. And so what we found is that users had a very hard time reasoning about and debugging complicated sort of streaming stateful applications in the back end. And I think Convex's approach is a lot more amenable and you're less orchestrating the semantics of the stream processing, like I'm going to do a map here, I'm going to do a filter here, I'm going to do a group in a window here. It's like more intent focused. You're declaring what kind of a view you want and then the data as it updates gets pushed into your application. And I just think that if you're a JavaScript developer right now, it's like a really exciting time to be alive because you have all this technology, which I think has very high probability of being very good together. And that's just so exciting. There's another question, uh, which is recently I've been just as a JavaScript for training out these finite state machines, both on the front end and on the back end. The interesting part there is that the back end and the finite state machine, not the best suited for client side manipulation. And then on client side, you have things like Redux, things like that. And at the end of the day, a state machine, an abstraction to figure out how the react to the reactive system is going to go. So what's your view there on this formalism on like, where the state machine is going to go, is this like a pattern we're going to see more? Yeah, it's tricky because 
these things aren't necessarily competing with each other because as you said, they happen at a different level, right? Where state machines almost orchestrate like higher level change. And in a sense, reactivity generally is like communication pipelines, let's say. The challenge has always been with those state machines, I think, is they often, to be practical, require some kind of DSL in themselves because you need to like be able to describe the states. And that is takes a little bit of an investment. I think if you're ready to make that investment and the logic is complicated enough, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you could, as I said, put them both together, essentially use the state machines as a way of visualizing the, the data flows, like different like states that you can switch between, but it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. I think a lot of time in front end, we talk about synchronization. We're very much concerned with the, how things show up in the UI. So a lot of the work with reactivity is about like consistency. And in that sense, you can do a lot between end user and display without getting there. So I think it's one of those things where it's, it comes in where you need that kind of complicated logic and I'm not sure it's like an everything, although I know some people have definitely taken it as an everything thing. It's just, you have to opt into that abstraction, I think. One more comment here, because it's such a good point of, it's just like people take it for everything in that it's kind of like playing Tetris. When you play Tetris for too long, the world becomes Tetris and it's called the Tetris effect. And there's a Wikipedia page on this. It makes sense too, because any kind of abstraction, you kind of get a bit of this, right? You start looking at the whole world differently. If we found this actually with solid a lot of people who've come in and actually learned solid and solid's reactivity, it's a good way of explaining things. I think someone was talking earlier about it being a language, right? And I often actually describe the reactivity that we use in solid that way as this kind of converging language of basically three language primitives, with the state or signal, derived state, and side effects. And once you start like using that kind of terminology and think of change in your applications that way, I found a lot of developers who've learned Solid go back to React or Svelte or someone else and go, oh, I have a different view of it. I see how that works now. In a sense, the other frameworks start making more sense to them because they have this mental model based on the change mechanism itself to kind of see it. So yeah, I can definitely see the, that whole perspective in terms of once you're in that thing, everything becomes that. State machines would definitely be like that. I have an open-ended question, which may not make any sense, but it's always seemed to me that people call reactive framework, but it's always seemed to me that it's like a competing DOM model implemented on top of the browser's DOM model. As a person who develops solid like framework, I'm curious to hear what you would like browsers to implement in order to make these reactive experience really sing inside the browser, if anything. Yeah, I, this has come up to me more recently because as Solid started getting more attention, people are like, why can't we just bring it to the platform? I've actually had a lot of hard time with agnostic solutions historically, and especially standards-based stuff, like when web components came out and whatnot. Like web components are, are fine and you can use them, but like when people start making generic, this web component framework works with, you can author in any framework. They never actually worked well with Solid because of different perceptions of like how change models can work. Most things are like, there is a render function, call the render function. There's a template called the template. And that has never worked well if you assume that much. So I ended up building a lot of my own tools. And those things could be maybe avoided if maybe less the browser, but even the JavaScript spec had some more consideration for stuff like reactivity. It's tricky though, because JavaScript is a language that has what it has. These speakers, and I don't know if we should be like, pushing in there. But the one thing you see commonly in frameworks, I was talking about that language thing, even if React itself doesn't use the same kind of reactive primitives, I talked about those three things. They have use state, use memo, and use effect. And the very different mechanically to how the reactive systems work. But 
language-wise in terms of capturing intent very similar. And you start wondering, like we're all trying to shoehorn like a different language into JavaScript, right? Because that's why there's hook rules or why you lose reactivity when using solid sometimes if you like access the variables in the wrong place. It's If there was some sort of way to maybe have a reactive signal actually be part of the language somehow, that would be amazing. We, I mean, even Svelte, like why is Svelte compiling everything? It, it comes down to that point on the language. So yeah, I don't know if JavaScript should go that way, to be fair, because it becomes a very different thing. But it seems like every single JavaScript framework would want it in a certain way. So tying back all the front of development to more of a backend infrastructure, we still see an impetus mismatch between the ever-growing ergonomics of front of developers with a player like Vercel, Netlify, and others, but most of the data infrastructure is still very much geared towards the old ways of developing software. Technologies like Kafka, Redis, Postgres seem awfully low level for the level of abstractions we're seeing elsewhere. Yoko, can you talk more about what you are seeing as the interesting opportunities for improvement here? Yeah, so I guess coming from recovering infra, like a lower level infra person who just use Terraform and stuff like that every day. And why I was trying to use things like CDK and JavaScript to provision infra, it honestly felt weird. It's as if drinking your porridge using forks, like you can do that. It's just like kind of a weird experience when you try to do it. As I was writing more what I call like modern monolithing that you don't need a heavy backend, you just have JavaScript everywhere. I was thinking about how these different infrastructure pieces should go with the more serverless model, if I read it, serverless. And then I was thinking about what is missing. So I was like, oh, if I need to process a large group of events, I don't really have a queue. I don't want to call an API to provision Kafka. I don't know how to manage it. I don't want to manage it. And then at the same time, I'm like, oh, now we're deploying more things on my edge. And there needs to be a cache. I still want to manage Redis. I don't want to use my database as a cache. You can't do that. I was actually thinking about what is missing from this experience and what would make this experience better. Simple things like orchestrating Chrome job that's not running on my machine, not running on AWS. And the whole ergonomics are quite different between these two worlds. And I do see a gap between the two worlds. Another yeah. observation at the end of the day, it's like what we talked about previously with state machines and stateful workflows in the back and the front end. As I was experimenting with more things like Redux, I realized that there's a way to model the front end state using other libraries. But these libraries don't link back to the states in the back end. It's like a projection from the front end to the back end. So the whole thing just made me feel like there needs to be something in the middle that makes this experience better. But would love to pick y'all's brain on what you imagine those things will look like. I'm talking about things like as a JavaScript engineer, if I want a queue, where do I get a queue? If I want like an easy to use, say cache, what's the best way to do that? If I want something like orchestrator on the front end, actually takes care of both my business logic as well as the client state. How do I find that? So not really about specific tools, but like just on a meta level, what that world should look like and what the world is. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, which I mentioned is most of you, Yoko used to work on Terraform and I used to work on Pulumi. Also at Heptio before was that I think that the people who are building the platforms tend to want to build abstractions where they build like libcloud or something where it's like this higher level abstraction and there's like a generic cross-cloud cache and generic cross-cloud queue and stuff like that. Um, at both Heptio and at Gloomy, I think we 
my take personally, there's like different views on this, but my take is that we found that this was really hard. It was really hard to present that to people in a way that they didn't grow out of and inject the abstraction at some point. And the reason is because all of the little knobs you have on the load balancers and the caches and the queues and stuff are like real enterprise use cases that infrastructure engineers actually need in order to do their job sometimes. And so where Pulumi ended up on this was they developed these like abstractions, which are like sensible defaults for piles of resources. If you're starting an ECS cluster, you get the VPC instances and you get like CloudFront and stuff like that. But you can poke down all into all of those knobs. Uh, I think about this often because it was by far, in, in my view, by far the most success we had at either company building abstractions that other people could actually use. And I don't think it was an accident that they were modeled directly after the experience of provisioning those resources in the AWS console itself. And it has caused me to really think a lot about what the nature of abstraction is in cloud resources and whether it is possible to build truly higher level abstractions at the programming model level. I think you can do it at the like service level, right? Like I think Snowflake and Aurora clearly abstract over S3 <laughs> and in ways that developers find like like, right? And like in a way that you can build a platform on top of it and you drive consumption into the platform and stuff like that. I think like service level abstractions are going to continue to be very successful, but it's not clear to me yet that there will be any winner in the like programming level abstraction space. So I'm very curious to see how like Wingling and Stately and all of these companies grow up and turn into something that is interesting. Yeah. So another observation in this context is that I realized that speaking of just building things in abstractions, I've seen a lot of frameworks these days implementing similar things, right? Like one framework implemented RPC, like Blitz. They actually were earlier in that journey. And that there's echoes of the RPC, like semantics and a way of doing things, even solid, and <laughs> React is trying to do server components, server functions, that kind of thing. So I'm seeing like not just RPC, but in other kind of components too. And for some reason, everyone's thinking about implementing the same things. So I'm actually curious, Ryan, what's your take on differentiating like among all these different frameworks and what do you think Solid does best when everyone's thinking about, talking about implementing similar paradigms? Yeah, it's tricky. What's happened here is we all acknowledged a few years back that we needed to start using the server more, right? Like we couldn't just do single page client rendered apps. So the first version of that was very naive in a sense. We'd just pre-render the page and it got okay, but it kind of showcased that doing that alone wasn't enough. Like, yes, we got to see the page sooner, but it didn't change the amount of JavaScript we were sending to the browser. The authoring experience was largely unchanged. It's funny. I worked at eBay for a while on Margo and eBay is very different kind of needs in terms of being e-commerce pages had to load instantly. And in that world, we'd gone to a, a model where we shipped a lot less JavaScript and page loads appreciated that, let's say. And we're seeing that th those kind of models come into the single page app world now. That's what's going on with Next 13, the server components. And when you combine this with this edge deploy and the return of the monolith on the front end side, we're getting to this place where we're kind of accepting that you need JavaScript on your back end to get the most out of your front end, which is probably paradoxical to some people. Like you write more JavaScript to get less JavaScript. But this is why you're seeing a lot of exploration with these tools, because now we're like sitting there and it's kind of new again, where you're like, okay, we have the front end and the back end. We know we control both pieces. What can we do? One of the first most obvious ones was simply like, hey, 
if I have a function here, why can't I call it in both places? And that's where the RPC kind of stuff came in. And I, that's why they're all, everyone seems to be working on the same things because they hit the same problems. They're like, okay, how do I send less JavaScript? How do I do that multi-page app thing in single page apps? That's what server components are. I'm sitting here, how can I make my function call? Yeah, we did a lot of that with Solid Start in the fall, can implement that. React team is doing the same stuff. And that's why I don't see this actually as a differentiating feature, really. Like, I think everyone's just going to land here anyways. That's why I haven't been like, use that as like the unique value prop. Like literally everyone's going to be doing this kind of stuff, at least like where the space is going there. Yeah, I don't know. This isn't going to alone going to be the piece. I think the challenge is that we don't know what the best developer experience for it. There's a lot of controversy right now where people are getting angry about how much compilers are doing or whatnot, or how much we're warping the semantics of the language. But this has been a long time coming. So as I mentioned, there's limits to the language that everyone hits. And now we're really pushing that to the forefront. So I think that's where like it's going to come from. It's not going to be like what it does, but like how you do it that actually makes you decide how to choose the solution. So I think one of the things that you and the Next.js team and stuff are pushing on that is really interesting, really valuable is in some sense, you are all collectively tricking front-end developers into becoming back-end developers, but also in a way that does not cause the platform teams to flip out. If you told me like a 2017 or whatever that Vercel, we're going to make like a React Native CDN and the React Native CDN is going to have a backend component. First of all, like React Native CDN, I would have been like brainworms nonsense. Why is that an interesting idea at all? And I would have been like completely wrong about it. But the thing that is really interesting about like this whole space, right? Like not just the next step, but also the solid stuff is that you're taking this application that's written primarily by front-end people. It has a backend component. The backend component is powerful enough that they can build not even simple apps, but just like real backend apps. And people are outsourcing all of that like CI, CD work into platforms like Netlify and Vercel. And the platform team, contrary to what we all would have expected in 2016 or 2017, is happy about it <laughs> because that means that they only have to develop their APIs and that's what they expose to people. And that's what they wanted to do anyway. They didn't want to get stuck deploying a node or, or whatever. And I just think that the space of stuff that you guys are pushing on is just so interesting. It's right on an organizational seam in a way that empowers both parts, both the platform and the front end teams. And I think that's so interesting. These aren't contradicting or conflicting things. Like you still have your back end to do your heavy processing. We're just like making sure that the very front end piece, like the web server classically works the way we want it to. But like everything behind that gets to leverage everything that you've always wanted to do. We've just kind of taken that off your hands. Feel like we took state off your hands with a single page. Yoga, a question that I have for you about kind of what we're seeing in this world. It seems like there is a almost like a different set of abstraction where you build from the back end more towards the front end. And what you now seem to be proposing that there is also more of the front end workflow and we should create the right abstraction for them. But it's like building a bridge from two sides and they might not meet. So, what, how do you think this will? evolve? Do we need to work on both sides or just one side will win the war? I don't think we can work on both sides because it's a very different go-to-market, different persona, why are you using a tool, different adoption path. And I always go back to how GraphQL kind of took up how API is abstraction, right? Like the RPC layer abstracts on top of the API because if you're front-end or back-end are the same language, why do you need that contract? Same with the GraphQL. It's like your back-end team, like work on databases and the processing stuff. Front-end team, I want to consume whatever I want. Here's a schema. You can query whatever you want. So I think that's going to be the state of the world too. At the end of the day, like what Alex said about knobs in enterprise companies, when there are two 
multiple groups of people working on different components because one team just cannot work on everything. They're advanced to be just some abstractions and portals that allow them to collaborate with each other better. So I think that's going to be what's happening. But where those portals and abstraction will live, that will be how much Fremen pushes and how much power they can have just operating by themselves on a very powerful platforms. And on the back end, it would be like, what's the new mechanics that they want to work out? And then what's the pieces that's highest leverage for them to take on? So maybe to follow up with a question with you, Alex, as we think about the world, we have far fewer data center people working at most companies. We take away, let's say, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. And will we see in a similar manner that actually we'll have fewer kind of backend and infrastructure engineers at most companies, and we'll actually see most of the HR is doing more of the business logic stuff, what we can attend maybe to play more of a front end. And because of that, probably we will need to accommodate the ergonomics that they are expecting. And that is what the world will come to. It's such an interesting question because breaking out cohorts of developers into like sensible groups is actually super hard, right? Like you have like line of business developers and like SharePoint consultants and stuff like that. Do that count as backend and so on and so forth. What I will say is that I'm really excited about the JavaScript ecosystem in general, starting to blur the line between what are historically like infrastructure platform teams and historically like front end app teams and historically like the backend teams, like the people deploying the servers and stuff like that. I think it's because of a lot of stuff. Like people are talking about the cloud. Oh, there's WASM or whatever. But what if the future is already here, right? Here's the bull case for that. It's like JavaScript is the largest ecosystem on the planet of developers, right? There's more JavaScript developers, I think, than any other language on planet Earth. JavaScript can run pretty much literally anywhere, right? Like in your browser, as like a stored procedure in your database or your CDN, right? In embedded devices, on your laptop, as in the server, literally wherever you want. It's the most secure runtime on the planet as far as I know, right? You can run multi-tenant applications inside the same JavaScript V8 engine, and it's totally fine. You probably don't want to do that just because FUD, but you can do it. People do it. Uh, the runtime is extremely tiny. It's really fast to boot up if you don't add a bunch of stuff to it like Node does. It's probably the language that is like most convenient to express data in. It's got a type system that people love so much that they opt into it, which is fucking crazy. So I think there's this opportunity to blend the boundaries between these teams. I think there's like a lot of pent up energy, like potential energy in the JavaScript ecosystem. And over the next couple of years, I see a lot of companies start poking holes through these organizational boundaries and stuff is starting to bleed through and trickle through, right? Like you have like Vercel tricking front-end engineers and becoming back-end engineers. But also I think the reason why companies like Deno and Bun are interesting at all is because... If you can become the primary way that you distribute JavaScript applications, it seems dumb right now, but in a couple of years, if that potential energy starts to really unlock, you are open to all kinds of adjacencies that are really interesting. You could imagine expanding that, not just delivery, but like you could imagine becoming like Bun or Deno becoming like the way that people deploy and deliver all kinds of JavaScript applications, all kinds of different scenarios. I think the outcome of that is that I hope that the number of people who are like pure backend engineers goes down per capita because it means that they're concentrated on developing these consistent APIs like GraphQL APIs or whatever that are providing services for like storage and stuff. But everybody else is working on business logic, which is more connected to like what users actually need and like delivering value to them. And the whole prospect is just super interesting to me. And I'm very excited about it in general. It is really cool watching these kind of runtimes coming up because it gives us a new target and hopefully a consistent target. That's where I would stuff like 
the winter CG or whatever, like the groups coming together where it's not just about Node or the browser, but maybe this kind of universal JavaScript runtime that can run everywhere. I'm just speaking on the front end perspective. The frameworks and the like tooling there is starting to get into this mentality as well. It's just at the beginning of it, but you start going, okay, how do we approach this from a developer experience standpoint? We're building monoliths, but we know that in very short order, we're not going to be outputting monoliths. It's not going to be like serve your whole app from a single edge function. I expect what you're going to see is patterns develop about how we can author in kind of one way and then distribute the processing out of that single application flow, like basically build JavaScript applications as a single app and have it distribute multiple places, have processing close to where the data is, have processing close to where the end user is, and all on this common runtime. As I said, we haven't seen it yet, but I am very excited to see what this looks like. I know that the Netlify's and the Vercel's of the world are all going to be in there looking at how we can distribute this processing and kind of get JavaScript almost everywhere. Totally echo that. And I think the thing I love the most about JavaScript is that everyone has touched or has used JavaScript. I just have them running to any developers like I've never wrote written JavaScript before, more or less they have. That is the most common denominator. And nowadays, there's even crazier mm -hmm. things you can use JavaScript for. You leverage your web GPUs to have more processing in the browser, make Figma-like apps. There's more of that now. For me, if I would have to find out what technology will always be JavaScript, you can use it however you want around doing infra to GPU to other things. It's also just a ton of fun, <laughs> right? Like modern JavaScript environments are just like a ton of fun to use. They're just like yeah. a snappy little sports car or something. Absolutely. Awesome. So switching to a crowd favorite topic, stuff that happens on the Discord server. Recently, there was a discussion on the server on whether large language models will destroy humanity as we know it. This conversation evolved into morality, ethics, and the philosophy of science. Alice, so what do you think? Should we start preparing for the bidding doom? Is this what I am? Do you like the AI takes guy? No, they're not going to destroy things. Jesus Christ. I feel like humans are so funny, right? You can see why Blake Lemoyne fell into the trap of thinking that Lambda is sentient and is going to like trying to get out of Google data centers or whatever. And when I think of existential risk and like AI alignment and stuff, broadly speaking, I tend to think of technology generally as like leverage as a person who's worked on production systems that do this kind of thing. I tend to think of technology as fundamentally about leverage and whether or not that technology's danger is like leverage to who, basically. And before we get to the point where we're going to have existential AIs and Terminators running around killing everybody, we're going to have a much more concrete scenario, which is at some point, some corporation is going to have a shit ton of power that they probably shouldn't have. And that is a, a much more pressing concern in the short term. And this isn't just true of AI. It's true of like literally any technology, right? Like Facebook is, whether you like it or not, as powerful as like a very small nation state, right? That's the leverage of the Facebook platform. The same thing with Google. It controls what information people have access to in a very fundamental way. But I don't think even think the large language models are close to that at this point, right? They may get close in the next couple of years, but like right now, the risk is not even a platform risk, right? If I was like a super rich billionaire or whatever right now, I would start a lab to prove this point. I would start a lab, develop an AI specifically to murder everybody on the planet. And then we would fail and I'd be like, see, nothing bad happened. It was fine, right? But that's how confident I am that like, that's not going to be like, that's not actually going to happen. Anyway, that's but extremely spicy take. I'm not concerned about this. I'm a lot more concerned about people using 
highly leveraged technology to actually do things that are super bad, like a bed genocide or something like that. Yeah. So the thing I found a little bit peculiar about this whole discussion is, you know what, let's assume Alex, you're wrong. And this is indeed the worst technology ever created. Then the question is like, what do we do about it? And it seems some of the solutions that people are proposing is let's get everyone in a room and agree to play fair. But we have experience around that. Like, for example, with nuclear weapons, where there were accords where companies agreed, oh, it will be great if we can stop using them. And guess what happened is just we started testing nukes underground. So people don't know that we're developing. Which, by the way, a fascinating story, it led to the invention of the fast Fourier transform, right? To exactly detect yeah. these underground testing. So that is, I think, one of the problems I have with this narrative that we should be careful about releasing these models because there will be bad actors and they will try to power these models to do the things that they need to do. And there is nothing that we can say or ask them to make them stop it. I just have that observation. I never thought we will have words, JavaScript frameworks, and nuclear weapons in the same episode. Yeah, only on this podcast. Yeah, only on the Discord too, right? You have those conversations going on totally concurrently in separate channels. Vitaly, your point is basically that the discussion should be a policy discussion, basically, where it's like, if these things are really going to get out of hand, we are not going to have effective tools for regulating parties that have access to this massive amount of technological leverage, right? More than that a little bit, I'm saying the Luddites coming in and trying to destroy the factories, that is the thing that will not work. I think we should just be careful around how we leverage them in the meantime, but really we cannot stop progress. LLMs are not going to go away just because we find them dangerous. They will be continuing developing them and we have to think about how do we actually leverage their powers to create more good in the world than evil. Everybody is always talking about 1984 as like the quintessential dystopian epic, but I think like Brave New World is a lot closer to the way that people actually work, which is that instead of fearing some like unknown outside force coming in and controlling everything, I think the thing that will really screw you up most of the time is humans just consuming a lot of stuff and not being able to stop consuming stuff. And for better or for worse, like this genie is out of the bottle and it is granting wishes, right? It's not doing a very good job of it, but you can't put that back in the bottle. It's not going to happen. There's no way to regulate this away at this point, right? So in general, I think the existential risk people are really an interesting group because there's a lot of talk about like Yudkowsky-style abstract mathematical equations about whether or not the AI is going to run away and turn us all into paperclips or whatever. But from like a person who's worked on like production AI systems, I can tell you even stating that goal in a way that is not ambiguous that would cause the AI to actually optimize for that stuff is incredibly hard. If you were to set up like evil AI corp or whatever, evil open AI, and your goal was to like try and get an AI to kill everybody, right? The number one thing that you would be trying to do is you'd be trying to get the AI to actually concentrate on the actual objective, which is like murdering every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. That's actually super hard. The first thing that the AI is going to do is it's going to try to optimize away that rule. And most of the time, its optimization is going to be just like think really hard about murdering everybody instead. It's going to be doing something other than like actually building this machinery to kill everybody. I, that's why I'm not worried about that part, but I am worried about like consumption patterns. Like I think that it's much more likely that people are going to consume the platform in a way that backs us into a corner, which gives a smaller number of people like really enormous leverage. And those people may or may not be the people that you want to have enormous leverage. Like right now, it's essentially random. It's like the guy who invented the machine or whatever. Like that guy now gets to be in control of everything. Is that really the way that it should work? Maybe, but maybe not, right? I don't think we know. And 
I, I think the reason why regulation is going to be ineffective is because I think the people fundamentally regulating this stuff don't have a fundamentally clear understanding of like how this innovation happens and like what the incentive structures are and why we're in the positions that we're in the future. And so I'm very not optimistic that Congress will be able to make laws that like effectively govern this without stifling the ability to do stuff. Anyway. Yeah. So if only a group of billionaires can come together and maybe create an open kind of AI set of algorithms that will compete with the Googles and Microsoft of the world, and let's say maybe name it open AI, that could have been solved the problem. But as we've seen, that probably did not succeed. But let's talk maybe about not such a doomsday scenario, the AI terminator killing robots, but more about the topic of kind of misinformation. And that's a launch. Oh, AI collectively told the internet, there is like a lot of raw things, but maybe people who and a full prompt engineering or other mechanism can actually easily fool the AI, do their bidding for them and have the answers that they're kind of looking for. Kind of like early days, if you remember people hacking the Google's SEO algorithm in order to produce kind of the results that they wanted. What are your thoughts there? I don't know if I have big opinions here, but honestly, as a programmer who now uses ChatGPT and Copilot, she can also copy my code. My perspective was always, I need to double check this code to make sure that nothing's injected into anything. So every time Copilot generates a big chunk, I'm like, are you compromising the system I'm writing? Although I don't have much in the background anyways. But that is the thing I'm thinking about, who we're talking about, what LLM could do. Oh, wow. These are supply chain management, meeting AI, meeting security kind of things that, you know, there's like whole set of things that we will have to start worry about. Like just imagine it. There was a engineer somewhere that tricked a Google Copilot to produce malicious code that then got bundled with some random JavaScript library that everyone started to use. This is crazy stuff. To your original question, I think the thing that I think a lot about is that consumption changes the dynamics of systems in ways that I think are very hard to predict. So if you'd gone back in time to 1969 and you'd listen to Arthur C. Clarke, he was describing like, a future where there's like a device that fits in everybody's pocket and contains on its hard drive or whatever, all of the world's information. The thing about that is like, he was actually right. Like that actually did happen. You could arguably take all the information from 1969 and fit it into an iPhone or whatever. The problem was that the access to that technology also precipitated a massive increase in the amount of information. And so it was no longer true. What he stated was true, but like the future, because of the access to technology, caused the world to be different in a way that he didn't anticipate. And this is often where the gap between like futurism and like reality is people not understanding how consumption changes these things. And I think for AI and stuff, when you think about misinformation, I think that the things that we are worried about right now, some of them are going to be real and some of them are not, but they're going to be very hard to predict because the way that people are going to consume these platforms is not yet determined. Right now, we are using them to generate a bunch of art. Right. As far as I can tell, the most successful generative models right now are all image models. And if that's true, if that consumption trend continues, then my guess is that we're going to have a different set of problems just because the fact that people are consuming that the most versus like the LLM stuff. I think that the main direct implication so far is like if Bing is actually good at their job, they're going to drive down the margin of search and like Google is going to suffer concretely as a result. But I don't actually think that that may not have actual negative impacts on consumers. We will see if consumers keep consuming like Bing GPT or whatever, Bing chat or whatever they're calling it. 
But if they're not, then it doesn't matter. And so far, it does not seem to be the case to me that could be wrong. I don't have like inside knowledge of these metrics or whatever, but doesn't seem to be the case that there is a groundswell consumption cons consistently of chat GPT and Bing GPT in the same way as there would be other models. People are complaining about this, but it's not clear yet that is what people are worried about is what's actually going to happen. So folks, you heard it here first from Alex Glover himself. We are all going to make it. So with that reassuring message, we can end the episode. Ryan, Yoko, and Alex, thank you so much for joining us. And for all the listeners, thank you for listening.